Welcome to the audio podcast of the sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. Now, very rarely do you go to see a show of some kind, and there isn't an opening act for the main attraction. Often, even the opening act has someone to come and warm the crowd up a little bit with, say, an MC or something like that. And this is a very good thing. You, you feel like you get more of your money if you go and see more than just one band or one part of the show. This is a good thing. Now, I've been in the position of having been the warm-up act and also being the final act. So I can appreciate how all of this works. It is good as the warm-up act to have the opportunity to play with someone who's maybe more well-known, and it's also good to be the main attraction. We did this at a, at a little local show a few times, and it was nice to have the crowd warmed up, ready to go, excited to hear you play. Now I can think back and remember some shows that I've been to, where the opening acts were unknown to me. But being exposed to these groups, you know, it made me a fan. It was an opportunity to see this. Well, I can also remember back to seeing a favorite band of mine, and I saw them play both roles, the opening act and the main feature. Well, it was a small show where they were the main feature. It was a small, like, Christian camp-type thing outside T, South Dakota, Great experience. One of the favorite shows I've ever been to. Well, a few months later, I was excited. I heard that this little band that I enjoyed was going to be opening for the big act, the Newsboys at the Sioux Falls Arena. And I was honestly far more excited to see the opening act. Way more than the main attraction. But it turned out that the change of venue was not very favorable for this band that I liked. Their raw, alternative sound of music didn't contrast very well with the established pop group that was headlining. And while I liked them better, it was very clear who the headliner was. There was no dispute. Not only the reaction of the crowd or the way that they sounded, but there was just a stark contrast on how big the budget was between the two bands. You knew who the opener was, and you knew who the headliner was. And as we come back to Luke 7 this morning, we're reminded of this one who was the opener for Jesus. Way back in the beginning of Luke's gospel, we met John the Baptist. In fact, we met him before he was even born. We learned that he leapt in his mother's womb in the presence of the yet unborn Jesus. And we also read that he prepared the way for Jesus in chapter 3. And and Luke makes the connection with John being the one that the prophet Isaiah had prophesied about. The one who would make straight the path of the Lord. And John the Baptist was quite the opening act. He warned these people. He, He not only baptized, but he called people out. He said to them, don't rest on the fact that Abraham's your father. And not only did he call them out to change their ways, but he told them that they should bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So John the Baptist set the stage. He was the opening act, and he did this very well. 
But as we saw in what we read this morning in our text, the main attraction, Jesus, has, has come to the stage. And it would seem that it isn't quite what the opening act had expected. And so John sends some messengers to Jesus to find out what exactly is really going on. Is Jesus the headliner? Or is there someone else who's going to come after him? So as we come to our passage today, we're going to once again break it down into three different sections to help us navigate it. And so this is what we have today. As the, as the passage starts off, we find that John has questions about the identity of Jesus. And this is interesting because you would think that the prophetic voice crying in the wilderness would be the absolute last person to question whether or not Jesus is the one. But as we consider this question from John, we can understand why. Jesus has been doing many miracles. He's been teaching with authority. Last week at the beginning of this chapter, we saw that Jesus raised someone from the dead. But there doesn't really seem to be much movement, does there? There isn't anything major going on. Or at least it isn't the movement that those who were expecting the Messiah anticipated. Well, secondly, we're going to see that Jesus gives an answer to these questions from John the Baptist. And as usual, it isn't the answer that the person asking probably wanted. It was a yes answer, true, but it was not the cut to the chase answer John likely desired. Instead, we go and we hear statements similar to what we read from Jesus taught in the synagogue and, and read from the prophet Isaiah earlier in the book of Luke. The answer is people are being healed and the poor having good news pro- proclaimed to them. And that answer is going to have to be enough for them. Finally, we see Jesus expanding on his answer by confirming the idea, uh, the identity of John to the people and then calling out those that John preached to. Now this isn't exactly a message that someone trying to gain an audience would shout from the mountaintop, but Jesus knows that no message from God will be well received, and he draws out the rebellious nature of those who are listening to him and those who are rejecting him. And so as we start out, we find ourselves in verse 18 through 20, and we have that familiar character of John the Baptist brought back before our eyes. And as we take a look at verse 18 here, it's important that we refresh our memory on where we were at last week. Way, way back before we returned to finish up Genesis, we worked through the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6. And last week when we came back to Luke 7, we saw Jesus perform two substantial miracles. We were reminded that Luke is using the divine origin of Jesus, the ability of Jesus to perform these amazing miracles. He's using this as a means of driving home to us that Jesus has authority. That when he speaks, we should listen. We see that he has authority over sickness, over disease, and he even had authority over death. And this lets us know that Jesus is Lord and we should listen to what he has to say. We should pay attention. And now we're seeing that even though these things are taking place, Seems like a pretty good sign, right? There are still those who doubt whether or not Jesus is the guy. Is he the Messiah? And believe it or not, 
This person who's doubting is someone who should know, right? This is the guy who should know. This, this is the one who recognized Jesus before he was even born. And now this guy isn't sure whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. This isn't what we expect. What's, what's going on here? Well, what were people expecting of the Messiah in the first century? You've heard me say on many an occasion that the big thing on their wish list was not a Savior. Not a Savior who would bear the wrath of God on their behalf. Not a Savior who would be their ascended King and Lord. What they wanted was somebody to save them now. They wanted somebody who would be an earthly king who would make the Romans feel the wrath of God. They weren't worried about a Savior who would bear the wrath of God on their behalf. behalf. They wanted the Romans to feel the wrath of God. They wanted their nation back. They wanted autonomy from Rome. They wanted a king descended from the line of David on the throne in Jerusalem. They wanted this earthly king, and they wanted him now. Well, people are saying that Jesus is the Messiah, and, he, and he's giving really good evidence that he is just that. But he doesn't seem interested in giving the Romans the boot. He isn't marching on Jerusalem and kicking the Romans out. In fact, in, in Luke, we haven't heard about too much activity in Jerusalem at all other than Jesus going there when he was 12. Jesus is teaching in synagogues and he's teaching on the countryside. There's not much movement against Rome there, is there? He isn't getting an army together or anything. So John the Baptist wants to know whether Jesus is the guy. Are you the one? And you have to wonder the motivation behind this and how it was asked, right? Is this a legitimate question? Like, we are wondering, Jesus, um, we can't tell. We don't know if you're the one. Or are they seeing these signs and passive-aggressively trying to get Jesus to act how they think he should act? Now, you have to think that both are a possibility, and so you have to love how Jesus responds here as we move on in the passage to verses 22 and 23, and we see our second point here with the answer. Now, Jesus is great at these kind of answers in the Gospels, right? He doesn't come right and say, yes, I'm the Messiah, I'm God the Son, I have taken on human flesh, I'm the One. But what he does do is force the people around him to deal with what they're seeing right in front of their eyes. He forces them to answer their own questions, doesn't he? This is a relatively common way of answering a question, but Jesus has it down to an art form. Now, you and I have done this before, or probably had this done to us many times. Someone wants you to process through the questions you're asking them and help you get to the answers on your own. It's a good way to teach, right? But let's be honest. It's a lot more fun to be the one who is helping someone come to the answer on their own than being on the other side of the equation. It's a lot more fun to be like Jesus here than to be like John's disciples. When, when you're on the other side of this, you often want to say, look, just tell me the answer. I, I just want to know. I asked the question for a reason. I don't know. Don't try and convince me that I already know the answer. Give me, give it to me straight instead of taking so much of my time. 
But like I said, Jesus is excellent at this method. He tells them, you know, because of, because of what you've seen here. The blind can see. Is that normal? The lame are able to walk. Is that an ordinary, everyday occurrence? Lepers are being cleansed. The ones who are unclean are being made clean. Did you see that one coming? Did you think I would be able to do that? And the dead are being raised. What more do you need to see than that? Are your average political revolutionaries pulling that one off? Have you seen any of these other guys who claim to be be the Messiah raising anybody from the dead? Oh, and by the way, the poor are having the good news preached to them. Yeah, the ones who are at the bottom of the food chain are being given the good news of the kingdom of God. Is that how things normally work in the world? Is that normal? Is this kind of stuff heralded to the poor in the backwater parts of Palestine? Is this normal? Is this the way the world usually works? And when we recall earlier parts of Luke, we remember that this language, these things that Jesus is saying here, this language has been used before. Remember when Jesus read in the synagogue from the prophet Isaiah, and he read the passage that says these very things here. And then he sat down to teach, and what did he say? These things have been fulfilled in your hearing. And so his answer is basically the same here. If you want to know, if I'm the guy, look to what I'm doing. This is what the prophet said the promised one would do, and here I am doing it. What else do you need? Do you need anything else? What other signs do you want? But here we also see Jesus adding an interesting statement that we need to look at before we move on to the rest of the passage. He says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Well, what's that all about? Well, we have seen that John is getting word of all this stuff. But it hasn't convinced him that Jesus is the one to come. John is impatient. He wants Jesus to take the action that he expects him to take. Now John surely loves the fact that the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, and and lepers are being cleansed. Who could object to the deaf getting to hear, or the, the dead being raised, or the poor having good news proclaimed to them? And so the call here for is for the people to be patient and understand that Jesus has come to do something more than to set up the earthly kingdom that they desire. And so this is a moment for you and I to stop and consider where we sit in the story. Now we would probably like to believe that we would not be like John or not be like his disciples or anyone else that was impatient with what Jesus was doing here. We want to be the person whose primary concern is not the things of this world and the kingdoms of this world, but but things that are the that are the things that are eternal. We like to think we might be more concerned with heavenly things and the work of God to save a people for himself. But if you and I were roaming the countryside and listening to Jesus, our hopes would have been on the improvement of our earthly position and status and on the kingdom of this world. Let's be honest. It's our natural inclination as humans to desire these things instead of the things of God. And as we read here, this 
This is a sobering reminder for you and I that even John the Baptist missed what was going on. He missed the point. And you and I know the story that is coming. Even the disciples of Jesus, the guys who were with him three years, they're going to miss it as we get further on in Luke. And so we need to humbly, each and every day, pray that prayer that the Lord taught us to pray and ask that His will would be done. Not the things that we want, but His will. But not only do we need to pray that His will would be done, but we need to have the wisdom and the humility to desire this within ourselves and to be content with the plan of God. And this is tough stuff. And if the heroes of the faith struggled with it, you and I will as well. And so we need to consistently be on our knees and seeking God's will in prayer with, with humble hearts. Because this is hard. If John the Baptist didn't get it, we're going to struggle too. And as we move on from this answer from Jesus here today, on to our final point, we see Jesus confirming the identity of John the Baptist as the one who prepares the way. And it's interesting here in verses 24 through 28 that Luke informs us that Jesus waits until the messengers from John had left to speak well of John the Baptist. And so Jesus asks important questions of the masses who have gathered to hear him teach. And he asks, why did you go out to John? What were you expecting? Well, we know that John was an interesting character. He wasn't somebody who lived in the palace or who held a place of power, and, and yet people went out to hear what he had to say. Why would they do that? Well, Jesus tells us. They went out to see him because he was a prophet. And the idea being expressed to us here in, in Luke is that there's a lot of expectation with the people. As I always say, the, the first century was a hotbed of messianic expectation. They had done the math on the 70 weeks prophesied in Daniel, and they knew it was in this era that they were living. They fully expected the Messiah to make an appearance. And so there were many people who made the claim to be the Messiah, and others were thought to be the Messiah. But none of those hopeful messiahs had panned out. And so it is with this sense of expectation that, that John the Baptist shows up. And he is like a prophet, a prophet of old. He really drew a crowd. They had read of the prophets in the Scriptures, and now there was one like those prophets out in the wilderness. And so they went out to see the show, right? And I'm guessing someone like John the Baptist was good entertainment in that day. And it would probably still be good stuff in our day. Likely way more entertaining than most of what you can find on cable TV or, or a streaming service. A prophet in the wilderness dressed like John, proclaiming what he was proclaiming. That's good stuff. And Jesus tells us that while John was doing this and they went out to see a prophet, he lets the people know that he was actually more than that. He was the one prophesied to prepare the way of the Lord. He's the leveler. He's the one who will make the way for the righteous one of God. And he was great. But the role he played as a prophet was of the old way of things, we read. And we get this idea from Jesus. As, 
as he says that none are greater than John, no one born is greater than John, but he's but the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. Now that's an interesting statement there, isn't it? You might have paused a little as we read it as we were reading the text. Because it sounds contradictory. There's no one greater who's been born than John the Baptist, but even the least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. Well, this sounds contradictory, but what Jesus is doing here is he's drawing our attention using a reversal. Because John is an Old Testament style of prophet, and the people would have thought that's great. But in the kingdom of God, and in what Jesus is going to do, the people of God who are in Christ are all greater than the prophets of old. Why? Because we're united to Christ. We have received His perfect righteousness to cover our sins. And you can feel what Jesus is doing here. He's telling us that while He is making the lame walk and the blind see, something even greater is going to happen. Something better is coming. And you and I are greatly blessed to know what this is. Through His perfect life, His sacrificial and substitutionary death, His resurrection and His ascension to the Father's right hand, we are brought into the kingdom of God and we are greater. Even the least of us is greater than a prophet like John the Baptist. And this is because we are united to Christ. We are the children of God and we are greater even than the prophets of old. And we see that the people hear what Jesus has to say. And those that like John and were baptized by him thought this was pretty great. But people who didn't like John didn't like what he was saying. And we see this in verses 29-35. through 35. Some, some heard and some believed, but others had hearts that were hardened. And we read that nothing they would hear would be enough for them. And Jesus uses some simple language to get us to see the degree to which they're rejecting Jesus and John the Baptist. He says, hey, there's party music. They're playing the flutes. And you're not dancing. And so we figured, hey, you're sad. And so a funeral dirge was queued up, and you didn't weep. They aren't drawn to John's call to repentance, and they aren't celebrating that Jesus is healing the sick and proclaiming good news to the poor. They're like that kid who used to come over to your house and wasn't happy with anything that you had at your house and didn't want to play anything. Nobody liked that kid. I hope you weren't that kid, actually. That kid is obstinate. They reject everything. Jesus says that the Pharisees are like that and that those who reject both He and John are like these children who who won't dance at happy music and won't mourn to sad music. Essentially, they are hard to both the rigor of the call to repentance and to the joy that comes from the news that the kingdom of God is at hand. What a terrible place to be. But Jesus says, the one who actually understands the moment has wisdom. And for us, the greatest wisdom is to hear Scripture call us to repentance and then understand the mourning that we must have over our sin, but not forget the joy of the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. For when we hear the message calling us to turn from our sin, we know 
that this is but the opening act for us in our Christian life. The law opens this up for us. It exposes our sin. And it calls us to daily turn from our sin in repentance and faith. It shows us that there is a time for mourning over our sin. But as I said, that is but the opener. The Gospel comes to us. And it's the sweet news that by faith, we are united to Christ and we have the gift of His perfect righteousness. And because He has taken on the wrath of God for our sin, we can walk in the newness of life that He has given us. And so the call on our lives each and every day is to understand this good news that has been proclaimed to us. Because we were spiritually blind to the things of God, but now we can see because of Christ. We were lame and unable to move towards God on our own, but now we are able to walk with Him in newness of life. We were deaf, but He opened our ears to hear the sweet news of the Gospel, and we believed by faith. We were unclean in the leprosy of our sin, but He made us clean. We were dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins. But He has resurrected us and He has given us new life. And so we depart from here today. May we not forget to look only to Christ. May we not go anywhere else looking for an answer. May we know that He is the One. The One who gives us joy. The One who gives us hope. The One who blesses us with peace. Jesus was the One they were waiting for. He was the answer. And we are so immensely blessed to know that He is already here. They were wondering if He was the One to come, but you and I know that He is here. And because we know that, we must not turn to another, but instead daily trust in Him and in His mercy and grace. So may we solely lean on Christ and His mercy that we might bring glory to His holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website, edgertonfrc.org, or our Facebook page.